Hey all welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host. Today, we have a guest uh, that's been on before, Mr. Lloyd Capuccio, and we're going to answer some questions that we get all the time about sous vide. Since it's the holiday season, we always have uh, new sous vide owners coming on, some of the Facebook groups, so we're going to answer some of these questions that come up all the time. But first, we're going to go into a deep dive on what sous vide actually is. So I'll be right back with Mr. Lloyd Capuccio, the Kosher Dosher. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren. I'm your host. And today we welcome back a guest uh, that has been on before, Mr. Lloyd Capuccio. He is the writer of the Kosher Dosher blog, and he's been doing sous vide for a long time. He's a moderator and uh, part of many different sous vide groups on Facebook, and uh, he's been doing this for a long time. Welcome back, Lloyd. It's great to have you. Hey, Darren, thanks for having me on your show. Really appreciate that. And like you said, I'm the kosher dosha guy and been doing this a really long time. And today we're going to answer some questions. But first, I want to do a uh, this time of year, you know, it's the holiday season. People get sous vide um, units for, you know, Christmas and and uh, other holiday gifts. And some of them never even seen sous vide or heard about it before. So I kind of want to do a deep dive into uh, sous vide, but not too deep, kind of an overhead view where they can kind of understand some of the terminologies that we talk about in the uh, Facebook groups a lot. And um, just so they can get their uh, heads around some of the concepts that are involved in, in sous vide. And one of them is, I think we've talked about before, is that sous vide is not just a gadget like a Instapot or a George Foreman grill. It's an actual complete cooking method like, uh, you know, boiling or, or braising or deep frying. It's a, but it's got much, much more, um, much more that you can do with it. So that's one of the things I want to talk about first. So let's, let's discuss that a little bit, Lloyd. Sure. That'd be great. So let, let, let's talk about actual sous vide, the method instead of just the sous vide, the circulator. Oh, okay. Great. Well, as we all know, sous vide, and for the newbies out there, it's a precision way to cook. Very, very precise circulating water bath at precise temperatures. You can't overcook your food. Of course, there's some parameters in between that that will, um, you can overcook your food eventually. Yeah, definitely can overcook your food. But um, one of the things that I think people, they, they kind of, when they look at sous vide, they think of it as a gadget. And um, I try to, in my Facebook group and a lot of the ones on there, people try to show people they can do more than just make a couple steaks or chicken breast. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and then that, that it's, um, it can do so much more than, um, than just cook a protein. Even you can cook vegetables, you can oh, cook absolutely. potatoes and, and everything with it. I would say that it's not a gadget. It's a cooking tool. It's another method of cooking. No different, whether it's your oven, your barbecue, your steamer, um, your rice maker, it's, it's a cooking method. Right. And um, one of the things I want people to understand, it's not just for a protein. I mean, and and it's not just for cooking a protein, oh, a, yeah. a perfect steak, you know, medium rare, you know, where you can't overcook it. I mean, we do a lot in, in the group and you do as well, experimenting. And um, uh, 
I, I, you know, one of the things that I like to experiment with is, is using CV to do things you can't do with any other cooking method, like making a, a brisket that you would normally have to cook to 200 degrees in turtle temp or higher and make it more right. well done to make it where you could actually eat it or chuck roast, you know, and that's one of the things that I think people, once they start playing around with sous vide, that's, that's the thing that really gets their attention. Well, you, you know, you touched on something other than protein. So, for example, corn, corn on the cob, right? Most people undercook corn on the cob, but with sous vide, it transforms it into something else. I've I played around with the times and temperatures, and I personally like 180 degrees for about four to six hours. It produces perfect corn. It actually digests your system. It brings out the sweetness. You can grill it on the barbecue hours later. Corn on the cob and a sous vide is spectacular it's 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 um amazing well and i love doing mashed potatoes or even i do um you know new potatoes oh yeah and and because of the fact you're not having to cook it in a boiling water where the boiling water you know extracts a lot of flavor from the potato that that water you're pouring out of it you know down the sink is all the starch yeah all the the starch and all the flavor Mm -hmm. from the potatoes so i like to make I like to make the potatoes. Now you do got to cook it a little hotter, you know, and that's one of the things people don't understand that different types of, uh, you know, vegetables have different cooking temperatures on a protein because they're different cell structures. So one of the things people, and I even talked about this in another podcast I did today or with somebody that, um, you know, that when they first tried cooking, uh, their steak they had potatoes in with the steak you know they had it oh, like 131. so they when they took the steak out the steak was good and they seared it and it came out perfect but they tried to cook the you know oh, take a bite of the potato and it was, it was rock rock solid yeah. because you know the the, the you know, vegetables and potatoes are different cell structures they have yes. you know, different temps you have to cook them to to get them done so and for your listeners uh for vegetables um optimum temperatures for the cells to break down is between 186 and 194. I would say at 194, shorter times, 186. Uh, and by the way, I was mistaken on the corn. 186 is a great temperature. Um, so 186 to 194 is kind of the the uh, temps you want to stick with for, for vegetables, corn, potatoes, and stuff like that. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the reasons I tell people that, you know, you should have if you want to cook your whole meal sous vide, you have you really need to have more, more than one one circulator, or you need to cook your protein beforehand. You know, chill it, then put it in the refrigerator, then cook your um, your hotter stuff like your vegetables, and then when your vegetables are almost done, you pull that meat out of the refrigerator and then sear it up. You know, and then- one of the things that I've done is I've done whole meals where I've done you know carrots, potatoes, protein, and several other things, and I've done done them over a course of three days. Time for dinner, I throw everything back in the water just to re-therm at an appropriate temperature. Pull everything out of the um, water, I have dinner. Yeah, that's great as well. And that's a lot of people, I you know, when they ask about doing those, um, you know, pre-making their meals, you know, for the week, you know, that's, that's mm-hmm. a really great way to do it. It's like, yeah, you take your Saturday and then you make all your meat, then you make all your vegetables and you make all your, uh, you know, your starches. And then put them all in the same bag and then re-therm them. You know, oh, you, cook them, awesome. you cook them all separately, but then, you know, you're bagging them up, 
you know, for later on in the week. And then when you're ready to eat them, you just retherm it. And like you said, then you, if you want to sear your steak or your chicken breast or what have you, it takes right. two, two seconds to do that. And you can extend its shelf life. As long as the food's been pasteurized in the bag, the bag hasn't been broken. You can extend its shelf life in the refrigerator. Yeah. And that's the kind of things that I think people need to understand that they can do with sous vide as a cooking method. Um, what one of the things I want to talk about is what sous vide can do and what it can't do. And one of the things it can't do is get that perfect sear on a steak or the that mallard, mallard it, reaction, the Maillard reaction where Maillard, you're just, yeah. the caramelization and stuff like that. But um, it, it really, you know, to me, it doesn't need to because it's so easy to get that, um, uh, you know, quickly that, you know, it really doesn't take long to get that, uh, you know, crust on that steak or, no. or your rust or, or, or your roast. So, right. Right. And that's one of the things we're going to address in the Q and a session here is that, um, the, the different ways you can accomplish that. So I don't want to bang, uh, bang on that too much right now, but one of the things that can do, you know, a lot of things that it can do are, like we said, it can make that, you know, your, your food, cook to a perfect temperature like with vegetables it can make your green beans nice and crisp oh yes i mean and it's so much easier to hit that perfect temp when you're when you're using the cv than trying to do it while you're steaming uh, or boiling uh, because the the temperatures are going so fast that the temperature of the food itself is rising so fast and i think you know i i, I was talking to meathead goldwin about this during our podcast yeah. and he kind of he kind of brought up the uh, an analogy of a, a freight train you know going at 100 oh. miles an hour and you're trying to jump off at the station and hit you know go right into the door of the station but it's almost impossible to do that because you are you know the, the train's moving so fast and by the time you jump out you're still moving that's a great <laughs> and, analogy that's a great yeah. analogy because um, that's what usually ends up happening, and then it's you know you have to rest your your steak. You, you cook it to a lot lower temperature than when you're actually looking for, because it's still cooking when you take it the off. Carryover, the carryover temperature, right? Which we don't yeah. get in sous vide, which is awesome. Yeah, so that's one of the things that I I really love about it, and being able to get get your green beans to that perfect you know level between you know just firm enough to uh, you know get that still have that snap where they're not raw and well, not, not soggy you know with green beans you often you have to basically shock them in ice water to stop the cooking you know exactly. with, with beans, you don't have to do that right exactly and like i said before you know potatoes you can get them to that perfect tenderness that you want mm -hmm. and not over overly done and and not underly done you can get them you, you know once you play around with it to figure out what you like and get that that personal preference you can make them the same every single time and not and have to worry about it yeah Let's not forget, sous vide is very forgiving. So whether you do it for an hour or two hours, you won't be able to tell. You have a lot of flexibility. Well, I mean, that's true to an extent. When you're cooking some of these, you know, tougher meats, you do got to get some yep. uh, time in there. But you can, you know, the difference between 22 hours and 28 hours is not that that much. Not for a long cook. Not for yeah. a long cook. Yeah. I mean, because I get that all the time. People will ask, you know, well, I, I only got 24 hours. I can't do the 36. Well, you can still do it. You know, it's just not going to be as tender as if you went longer. But, you know. Well, people you know, get concerned about going over two hours. You know, they put, they put, a, they put let's say, a, a steak in, right? And um, they want to cook it for uh, four hours. But they don't get home till 5 p.m. It's in the, it's in the bath for five hours. Uh, so you're not going to be able to tell the difference. 
an hour is not going to do anything to the steak that's prevented from tasting good. Right. Where uh, on the other side of that, though, if you don't have it in there long enough, it could affect it pretty well. Oh, Oh, true. My, uh, I have a, I won't say who it is. It's it's a relative of mine bought the the jewel and uh, she used the app to cook a steak and all I had in there was steak and she bought a two and a half inch ribeye. Okay. And she likes it rare. So she cooked it at 129 for two hours. And it came out red, uh, unedible. She goes, what would I do wrong? I said to use that app, you know. And, mm-hmm. and the app is only okay for some things. It's not good for everything, specifically proteins. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of, you know, the, the people that own the Jewel love the Jewel app. But I've, I've used the app, you know, without the Jewel itself. And their times and temps are off on a lot of things in there. Right. I've, I've found and and that that too. Talking about times and temps, you know, even with um with uh, Jason Logsdon's over at Amazing Food Made Easy, yeah. I like his his um, guide because he has a range of stuff. It's not just you know cook it to you know here's the time and here's the temp and that's it. it it's more of a range. You know, there's it, a range. It's, also, it's very subjective. You know what what you yeah. personally like. You know, and and Jason's right because um eventually you have to dial in what works for you. You know, you, ha- you have this range, you do it three or four times, you decide for yourself what you like and what you don't like. Yeah. And you do that on everything you cook. And, you know, I tell people all the time that when I first started doing uh, ribeyes, I started, I did them at one thirty-one, mm-hmm. you know, for two, two and a half hours. And then I kind of start playing around with it to see if something else I've, I, you know, did maybe come out better. And now I do, you know, one thirty-four for like three hours because I, I feel I'm still getting the doneness I want, but the, right. the fat and the collagen are getting rendered just a little bit more. makes right. it a little more juicy for me. I wrote an article on uh, cooking ribeye specifically, and I wrote a whole long article about cooking high fat uh, proteins. And I personally like 133 to 135 based on the quality of the ribeye. If the ribeye is choice cut, and it seems to visual inspection seems to be not the best. I might cook it at 135 for maybe an hour or two beyond what I would normally do. Where if you have a high quality piece of meat, I've I've had a lot of prime before, where I might choose 133 for less time because it is such a perfect steak. Yeah, and and I love that's one of the things I love about this cooking method. You can play around with times and temps within you know two, three, four degrees. You can get a totally different product. Absolutely, you know, or, or the or the time where the time and the temp combine. You know, moving those needles a little bit here, or a little bit there to see what you actually go. Wow, this is phenomenal. And I try to tell people that when they ask, you know, they get down there, and go, hey, what's the time and temp for a steak or whatever? You go, well, well like, what do you like? And I'd always tell them, you know, you need to play around with it because I might like it that way. And, and, but then again, you might not, you might do what I tell you and go, well, that didn't really come out. Yeah. Best. So <laughs> for me, I've dialed in a time and a temp for almost every protein, whether it's a flat iron steak, a flank steak, a ribeye, a New York, a filet, everyone has their own time and their own temperature. So I've dialed in a, and ribs, everything brisket. I have a time and temperature for everything. And I think it's important for people to know that going in because I've seen people really 
they do one or two cooks and sous vide and just go, ah, it, it, it doesn't come out good. You know, the, this method mm-hmm. stinks. You know, there's, you guys are all full of baloney. You know, I'd rather just cook it reverse sear on, on the grill or, you know, oh. do, it, do it the way I've been doing it forever. You know, people don't understand that you could just adjust the time and temp a little bit each way and oh, come yeah. out with totally different, you know, uh, totally different product. And, um, yeah, I re- really, I've had people, you know, do that. People I know that's like, well, I tried you know, sous vide a couple times and it just, you know, I, I sous vide a brisket once and it didn't come out great. You know, and it's a lot of, a lot of these barbecue guys you know, that they'll try it once. They'll try to do it the way they want to do it instead of the way they should do it. Mm-hmm. And then they'll tell you it stinks. And then they'll say, well, you guys are wrong. I'm going to walk away and go back over here and play with these guys. And it's like, that's fine. Yeah, they've made no effort, no effort to learn something new. And, and a lot of times they're just doing it to try to prove you wrong. They're, and they're doing well, that's it. That's true. They go in with the wrong attitude of, I'm going to try to experiment and, and see if I can make what I've been doing a little bit better. They're just, well, I've been doing it this way. I want to prove, I want to prove that, that what you're doing is wrong and what I'm right. doing is right. You know, so. Agreed. All right. So let's see. Um, let's talk about the danger zone just a little bit because okay. that's one of the things that comes up a lot with people that are new to CV cooking because they've always heard, you know, about the danger zone, you know, the food doesn't want, you shouldn't have the food in the, between a hundred and or between 40 degrees and 140 degrees for too long because you're not. so let's, let's just, let's talk about the danger zone. Give me a little bit of history. Sure. What the danger zone is. Well, something I've been studying for a while now, it started in the 50s, although it wasn't called the danger zone. And for the last, you know, 50 plus years, 60 years, the, the terminology has changed from danger zone to hazard level. Uh, even the times have changed as far as four hours, six hours. It used to be a, it used to be a 41 to 145. Then it changed from 40 to 140 over time. But really, it's a misleading, oversimplified a food standard that was created by the government. And, and the 40 to 140 is this huge margin of error for the average person. If they follow the, the, the government's um, mandate, basically for restaurants and food distributors and food manufacturers, they will be safe. But it really is a oversimplification of uh, what it really, really is because not all foods are dangerous at certain temperatures. Um, if, now, I like to kind of stick with, as, as it pertains to uh, sous vide, though. Um, I don't want to get too far into the weeds, but basically, it's very misleading because think about this. You can actually pasteurize uh, a protein at 128 degrees, but how can you do that if it's within the danger zone? It has to do with pathogen proliferation, okay? If you stick to certain timetables, right, it doesn't pose a risk to anyone. And, and uh, as far as how it applies to sous vide, there are two things to consider. The food coming up the temperature and the food coming down to refrigerator temps. I found from all the reading I've done, the risk really is not in sous vide processed food. It's when you shock it in ice water. Because most people set their bath at a temperature, food comes up at a relative time, it's when they put the food in the ice bath where it starts to drop the temperature. They do it over an extended period of time because they don't have that much ice. That's where it really poses a risk. 
because most pathogens will grow between, I think, um, well, in, in a very a prolific state, uh, between like 107 and about uh, 117. Somewhere right in between there. That's when there's a lot of pathogen growth rate. Well, on the way up from sous vide, you don't have to really worry about that because you said that, let's say, 128, 131, 133. It goes right through that range pretty, pretty fast. But when you create that ice bath and you put your, your food in there, it comes down awfully slow unless you actually use a lot of ice and, and uh, half water. Uh, and I can use some base times to be concerned about it if you're interested in that. So, um, yeah, I think maybe we can do that. We can go into uh, uh, down the road in another podcast episode. I think that's something okay. we could talk about in detail. And some of the, especially some of the uh, experiments I've seen you you've been doing oh, here yeah. lately. I think. Um, I think, you know, maybe next year, beginning of next year, we can take a whole episode and talk me, about some of let that. Let me give your viewers, uh, well, not your viewers, but the people that listen to the podcast, some, some basic stuff, basically. So it comes down to the diameter of the food. If you have a one-inch steak, it's going to take X, Y, Z to come to temperature. If you have a two-inch steak, it's going to take four times as long. So you have to worry about, basically, how big is your food, okay? So if you have a one-inch steak... That is, let's say, a strip steak. One inch steak, that's, you know, it's a strip steak. It may take, you know, two hours to come to the temperature. But let's say you have another steak that's three inches thick and four and a half inches wide. It's going to take a very long time to come to the temperature. So I would suggest everybody use Baldwin's tables. Although they're exaggerated just a little bit, um, they produce quality food and safe food. But um, and no, I use probes when I sous vide my food, so I, I've kind of got everything dialed in. But um, don't worry too much about the danger zone uh, between 40 and 140. Be concerned about uh, cooking your food safely, and I would stick with Baldwin's tables personally. Yeah, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to link the Baldwin uh, link to Baldwin's uh, website down in the description below for people who are interested in that. And the pasteurization tables are. Uh, Really, they're, they're <laughs> optional. They're really optional. I mean, there's no law that says you have to pasteurize your food. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, and I, everything I cook is pasteurized. But there's no law that says you have to do that. Well, but at least it explains how sous vide works. And that's yes. kind of kind of what I, when people ask me, you know, well, how can I know that? Well, if you look at those tables, yeah, there's a lot to look into there. Yes. But, but the general overall, uh, what he's trying to say is, if you take your your meat to this certain temperature, this long of a time, it's going to kill these pathogens. And right. it is more, you know, you do get people all the time. Well, you know, I got a 10 pound this, you know, how's it, how long? And it's like, well, it doesn't go by pounds. It goes by, like you said, the thickness, the diameter, of, thickness. You know, diameter because you get the, the heat's coming from the outside. And since you're dealing with a lower heat than you would normally in an right. oven or a smoker, it's taken longer for that heat to get to the center of your roast or your steak right. or whatever it is so one thing really, i want to i'm sorry go ahead I'm sorry. No, you go ahead one thing i want to touch on is one of the mistakes or the common mistakes that i see uh come up in the food groups specifically sous vide's time to temperature um and i'll so i'll see someone post i have a two and a half inch steak i'm gonna cook it two hours well what they don't realize yes it's not harmful uh it's not a big deal but those two and a half hours will not allow that steak to come to temperature. You're actually undercooking it. I'm not saying it's unsafe to eat. 
I'm just saying that it never reached 131 degrees to the core because you didn't cook it long enough. So Baldwin's tables in regards to time to temperature is important. I'm not saying that you got to pasteurize it, but you got to at least get the core to the proper temperature you want. And that takes time. Exactly, because it's not going to be medium rare, you know, if you don't allow it that a time for it to cook exactly. to medium rare, you know. So, yeah, I mean, I've seen people do that all the time. And sometimes, you know, and it's odd because there are all types of guides and, um, you know, reference material out there. You know, people will ask all the time on the Facebook, you know, time and temp. But some of them will just make up their own, you know, and, well, and come I, back and go, what I do wrong? Let me give you an example. This happened last night. Uh, a young lady in a food group posted um, this recipe from Serious Eats and it had to do with general turkey breast. And the article is said, cook a turkey breast at 145 uh, degree temperature water for about two and a half hours. Okay. And I asked if that was adequate. And that night, last night, I was doing my own turkey breast, and I was using probes. Well, that really is based on the diameter, the thickness of the protein. And I told her um, I had a 65-millimeter turkey breast, which is a little over two inches. And at the two-hour mark, I was only at 136 degrees. Um, I cooked that about six hours, though. Um, But... I, that's where I think Jason Longstrom had it right, where you kind of give a range of temperatures. Uh, Series East should have, you know, gave that um, that variable that if it's between this thickness and that thickness, you have to go this X Y Z time. But two and a half hours was really, really misleading. I mean, she could have produced something that was not only was it not pasteurized, but the center, the core, never reached 145 degrees. Yeah, and it could be actually dangerous. It could you know? It could be very dangerous. Yeah, especially on poultry. Yeah, but um, yeah, I, I kind of uh, I, I agree with you on that. You know, because uh, and you get this too. You know, people ask all the time. You know, cooking from frozen compared to cooking from oh. thawed. Mm-hmm. I mean, does it make a difference? Of course, it makes a difference because you know, if I'm going to cook something, I go by a guide that says you know. Uh, you know, cook it at 131 for two hours. Right. That is assuming that it's thawed. So you can't just say, well, I'll just add another 15 minutes because it takes so much longer, like you said, you know, for that meat to get to the thawed level, you know. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not as precise. If you've dialed in time and temperatures for your proteins and now you're dealing with something frozen, it's kind of a a guess. It's, It's really what it is. It's a guess. Yeah. Now I tell them if you're doing it, if you're cooking something for like 24 to 48 uh-huh. hours it really it really doesn't matter too much it's irrelevant yeah but if it's something where it's a steak and you're throwing a steak in and you you know you're just adding 10 minutes well that 10 minutes you don't you know at 131 degrees you don't know that that's thought all right. day so you, i've done it before so i know you're going to touch on a little bit about frozen and seasoning but i can give you some examples where i have gone from frozen but like you said they were done on long cooks and, and i'll touch on that in a second sure yeah we'll get that in the second part as well okay. so, so that's another thing you know one of the things i want to touch on just as an overview you know people always ask the newbies why does sous vide take so long i can't imagine cooking you uh, know for for this long of a period of time you know to cook something for you know th- you know five hours that would normally cook in 10 minutes you know <laughs> so why does sous vide take so long lloyd why does it take so long well, 
let's talk about gradient cooking. Um, so if you have a, let's, let's talk simple, a steak, right? Well, the average frying pan, if you're going to cook in the frying pan, it's at 450 degrees. You put your steak in there, the outside, all the moisture gets evaporated. It starts, the Maillard starts to happen, starts browning. And by the time the inside gets cooked, right, let's say you like 131 degrees, it's pink, outside is gray, right? Well, with sous vide, right, it takes a very long time because you're trying to avoid that gradient cooking. You're cooking at a very, very precise temperature. So versus the frying pan is at 450 degrees. So you can imagine the outer layers, you know, hitting right away, 212, working its way down to the center at 131 degrees. In five minutes, you have a steak that's not only overcooked, but barely any pink in the middle. With sous vide cooking, you're at 131 degrees from start to finish. So the outside is 131 degrees. By the time it works, it works its way into the center of the meat, it could take three to five hours. But you don't have the gradient table. In other words, you don't have any grays. You have no, no browns, no blacks. It's one temperature through and through. It just takes time. That's all. Yeah, and it's kind of like uh, when I was talking about Meathead and his uh, analogy of the the fast moving yes. train. You know, yes. Uh, you know, if you want precision, you want to be able to walk off the train and walk right into the door of the station. Yep, it's pretty much got to be stopped or going really, really, really slow. You know, so exactly. So the slower the train's going, the more uh, chance do you have to be able to walk right off the train and go to a straight line into the door of the station. So exactly, um, yeah, and that's one of the things that people, you know, they just don't get their heads wrapped around it at first. But then when you start explaining to them, and then when you start, they start seeing things that they can actually do. Like I said, you know, to me it was the brisket, you know, where I could make it medium rare, or the chuck roast that you can cook medium rare and actually be able to eat it, you know, as you know, taste like a, a, a you know ribeye steak because it's so it's tender. a game changer. Yeah, sous vide is a game changer. You know, people have a hard time. People, a lot of people don't like turkey breast or or, or poultry breast because they always always overcook it. With sous vide, you don't have to worry about that. Right. Yeah, and it's one of my, you know, my wife's favorite things is uh, top round, you know, because that normally you can't, if you try to cook that like a steak, you won't be able to chew it. You know, you got to cut, no, you got to no. cut it really, really, really thin, you know, so that you can barely, you know, uh, still can barely chew it. But if you cook that, you know, for 36, 48 hours at 131 degrees, it, it, you know, it's not the most juicy, you know, thing because there's not a lot of fat on it or, you know, to make it that way, but it's a lot better. And you can, it's one of my wife's favorite things because she's not a big, you know, fat, you know, on her steak person. So, she tells me, man, she, I'll have that all day long, you know. Wow, nice. <laughs> it's a great roast beef. I'll use top round for, for roast beef sandwiches. But, um, yeah, it's what, what Subi can do with some of these tougher and cheaper cuts. It just expands your menu a lot more. It does. You, know, you don't need to go out and buy a filet, you know, tenderloin if you want a, you know, a nice tender steak anymore. You can go get something that would normally be a little tougher and cook it sous vide and, and you couldn't tell a difference or, or you could make it something that's very similar that you go, man, that's knocking people's socks off that they couldn't. Not believe. to mention more flavor. Cause if you can make a, if you could take a New York steak, for example, and make it as tender as a filet, no, you have something f- flavorful, but also something that's very tender. Exactly. All right, Lloyd. Well, I think we, we, covered a lot there in the uh, first part. So I think we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to answer some questions that I've gotten from some of the groups and some some that I've gotten recently and some that come up a lot. 
and we're going to kind of address those. So Sounds great. I'll be right back with Lord Capiccio. Hey, all, it's Darren, and today I want to talk about the Inkbird Wi-Fi Rainproof 4 Pro Barbecue Thermometer that's brand new, the IBBQ4T has a rechargeable battery that can last up to 26 hours once it's fully charged and you can monitor it from pretty much anywhere with the 2.4 gigahertz wi-fi that it uses it comes with the brand new inkbird pro app that you can monitor your meat and the temperature of the grill from pretty much anywhere from your house anywhere in the house from your office from the store driving down the street inkbird makes some really awesome barbecue products and this one is no exception Check it out below with the link to Amazon. You can use the code that's listed for $30 off, making it only $70. Check out Inkbird and all their products. Now back to the Fire & Water Cooking Podcast. All right, we're back with Lloyd, and we're going to talk. Uh, we're going to answer some questions that come up a lot in the um, in the Facebook groups and stuff I get through emails, and uh, I know that Lloyd sees a lot of these questions. And uh, we're going to address these as uh, as uh, we see fit here. Not going to get to every single question that could ever come up with CV, but we're going to do a lot of them that, that uh, the general ones that seem to come up a lot. So one of the first ones that comes up, uh, and I, I know we see this all the time, is thoughts on seasoning your protein mm -hmm. before or after your sous vide cook. What's your, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Well, that's really interesting. So personally, I like to season. But again, it's personal and subjective. It's what you like. I, I've had some great... Let's talk science real quick. You season your meat. I'm assuming salt. Salt truly is the only thing that will penetrate the meat over time. The other stuff is the surface... Uh, it's your surface treating the meat. doesn't do much, except it is a surface treatment, and I love it. it tastes fantastic. I love seasoning meat before I sous vide. Specifically, the salt makes its way into the meat. And given enough time, it gets right into the center. So salt at precise measurements adds to the protein. Flavor. It's amazing. I love it. Do it all the time. Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, it's a personal preference. It is. And I, I never knock anybody who doesn't. But you, they can't convince me there's a reason not to. Because like you said... Uh, any other cooking method out there, you know, they, they you season your meat before you cook it. And even though it's just a, you know, yeah, salt's the only thing that will penetrate deep into the meat, the other stuff will coat the surface, even during right. the sous vide, even though it's going to be, you know, purging some liquid, liquid and, uh, you know, getting, uh, getting into the, you know, taking some of it off the surface. It's still getting into the liquid and that liquid is still coating the meat. Absolutely. Know? But in addition so, to that though, if your personal preference is you like the surface treatment, right? Then heck, we we it's how it tastes and how it's how it smells. You know, if you like it, do it. Um, I've done it both ways. I've run experiments where I've had you know eight steaks. I've done them all differently. One was just plain in the bag. One was with salt. One was with this type of seasoning. One was marinated. One was actually punctured with the seasoning of forcing of the meat. And everybody. No one liked the unseasoned steak. I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying that no one liked it. It comes down to personal preference. It really does in the end. Yeah. And like I said, I, I always tell people that. I'm not going to you know, tell you. And I do this with everything. It's just like the time and temp thing or the donenesses. You know, 
you know, everything's going to boil down to personal preference, right? You know, so this is is one of them. I mean, if you don't want to season your meat before you throw it in the sous vide, who cares? But don't, well, you know, but don't tell somebody they're doing it wrong because they do. Exactly. Know? You know, and I found it's, it's like someone's telling me, oh, I can't, I can't believe eating that red steak. I don't like it that way. Well, good for you. I don't, I like my steak rare. You know, right. we, don't, not, we don't care. I won't eat your food if you don't eat my food. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Although I bet my food tastes better. I'm not going to say that. I'm more <laughs> arrogant, but my food's going to taste better anyway. Right. So yeah. that, that's one thing that, um, like I said, it, it's going to boil down to personal preference, but there's nothing wrong with either way. No, um, you know, if you want, if you want the salt to penetrate the, the meat, especially if you're going to, you know, get that brining effect, because yes, um, I know you're big on, um, you know, amazing ribs. They have some of the um, articles on oh, there and amazing, you know, fascinating articles. I love meathead. And, you know, one of the articles gets passed around is that one on marinades and, and yep. all that. But there's another article that um, people kind of don't really see about brining. And then mm-hmm. one, of, one of the things in that brining article is that if you add salt to meat and you apply it, the brine to heat, it actually speeds up the brining process. Oh, you read my mind. Yeah, the uh, doctor uh, 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 Blonder Blonder right. wrote an article on that. I read that. Yes, um, as it cooks, the salt starts to diffuse and work its way into the meat. So even if you only dry brine for six hours, it's mostly on the surface. As the meat, as the protein cooks, sous vide, it slowly makes its way into the center of the meat. Exactly. And it speeds it up. I mean, it it, eventually, yeah, if you, you brine something for three or four days, eventually the salt will penetrate. But when you cook something sous vide, it speeds up that process because, because the heat makes the salt work faster. So, you know, technically if you put the salt in before your sous vide bath, you're actually speed brining. And, and let's, so, let's touch on this real quick for your viewers or, or your listeners, excuse me. So when you put salt on a protein, the first thing it does is it releases some moisture, it creates a surface brine of salt, and the moisture of the meat breaks down the salt, right? And it gets reabsorbed. That's, dif- that's d- diffusion. And not only does it flavor the meat, but it actually prevents it from um, overcooking, holds on to more moisture while it's cooking, and denatures the protein strands. So imagine those little fibers inside the meat loosening up a little bit. Well, when we cook meat, what happens? Everything tightens up and it squeezes out moisture. Well, by adding salt to your protein, it denatures the protein strands, it loosens them up, and during the cooking process, it can't squeeze as much water out, hence making a more moist steak and much more tender. Exactly. And that's one of the things I I think people get a little confused, especially this time of year. Everybody brines their turkey, but they think that they're adding Mm -hmm. flavor, you know, like the onions and the garlic and citrus. Uh, You know, they think that that's going to suck up into the turkey, which it doesn't. The only thing you're really doing, the brine is actually making that bird so that it holds on to more moisture when it cooks. So it's more flavorful. More flavorful, too. Yeah, it's, which makes it more flavorful. I mean, it's going to have that salt, you know, that salt is the seasoning, but it's also holding on to more moisture. But, you know, all that other stuff you throw in a brine, and really it's a, a surface treatment that's going to, you know, it'll be there on the skin and maybe on the, the top, you know, couple, you know, maybe right. thousandths of an inch on the on the uh, meat, but um, it doesn't but, get but that, but, but, you know, Darren, that being said, if you like it, do it. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Not saying that no, uh, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. Exactly. Because I do that too. I do it. I do it all the time. 
but I don't, you know, I know that it doesn't go deep into the meat and that's, you know, I don't I, do it. For I would reason. tell people if they really want to get inside the meat, you have to inject. Inject. Exactly. That, yeah. uh, and, and I just did, I injected my turkey as well last night with butter. I love yeah. butter. I like butter. Yeah, I do that too. I do butter, garlic, and a little uh, onion powder. And um, see, there you little, go. Little stock, and yeah, there's nothing wrong with brining and injecting. That's for sure. Not at all. All right. So the next question. Let's go into like we were talked touched on this a little bit uh, earlier. Uh, to cook from frozen, or do you have to thaw everything out? Um, so it depends on what you're doing. Uh, personal feelings. I like to defrost everything. I like it refrigerated temperatures because I've dialed in times and temperatures. On uh, short cooks, I would not recommend it because you're, you're guessing. On some long cooks, it's okay. So, for example, uh, tri-tips, flat iron steaks, uh, flank steaks, where I'm going a very long time, I will do it occasionally. Uh, for example, uh, tri-tips. I may go to Costco and I'll buy 8 to 10 tri-tips. Break them all down. I season them the way I want to. I let them dry brine for a certain amount of time. I vacuum them and I put them in the freezer. So not only are they dry brine, they're seasoned, they're frozen. Now, um, when I was working, I'm retired now, uh, I would want to cook my tri-tip uh, for anywhere between six to nine hours. But from the frozen state, it can go easily 12 hours. I dump in the water frozen. I go to work, come home, I got steak. So on long cooks, yes. Short cooks, no. Yeah, and I, I, I do a mixture of both. And usually, when I do the shorter cooks, I add, I, I add at least an hour, like with chicken breast or pork, you know, thin pork chops, mm-hmm. you know, like an inch. I, I know an hour is going to give me plenty of time. And like we said before, that hour, one way or the other, is not going to no, affect not at all. overdoneness. So it gives me that you know cushion to know that it's going to get thawed in time and all that too. And um, I like to, uh, you know, I like to do like you said. I, I bulk purchase, you know, meat at Costco. I'll buy a whole rib uh, sub, uh, oh, yeah. you know, sub primal, break it down myself, and then season them up and uh, bag them up and frozen. And then I can just drop them in the water and go when I'm ready to go. So, oh, yes. Yeah. I think that's the most convenient way to do it. And, you know, and it works well with just about any protein you can buy in bulk like that. So. Right. It's not my practice, but gosh, it's, it's so. It's awesome to do. You're in a rush. You know, when I was working a lot, uh, a lot of frozen chicken breasts that were seasoned in the freezer, dump them in the water for my wife. She gets up. She's got lunch for the kids. Yeah. Exactly. You know. All right. So let's move on from that. That's a pretty uh, basic question. But how about what do we do with the bag purge? All those juices uh, that we have after, the, uh, after we're done with our sous vide cook, there's usually some liquid in that bag. What do we do with it? How well, do we use it? I make sauces. I make gravies. So what, what is the purge to begin with? All it is is all the moisture, all the coagulants, little proteins coming out of the meat. It can be cloudy, shady. It can have seasonings if you use seasonings. And some people, um, they'll just uh, put it through a sieve or some cheesecloth and just keep the seasoning. Some will actually warm it up in the microwave and stir it. And what that does, it coagulates all the proteins, and then you can strain that through cheesecloth, and and you're you're left with um, a clarified purge, the moisture in the bag. And then I add it to sauces. 
Yeah, I do that too. And yeah, I, I, I had this conversation with um, Meathead because it's one of his big pet peeves is it's not blood. You know, there's not oh, blood. Gosh, no. it's, it's myoglobin and myoglobin yeah. is a protein. It's not blood. The blood's already been, yeah, the blood's been drained from the animal when it's right. slaughtered. So, I mean, it's actually not safe to have the blood in the animal. So when when you order that medium rare steak, you're not, you know, that juice that's flowing out of it is not blood. It's myoglobin. Right. It's just moisture. The pink color is the myoglobin. All it is is it carries oxygen to the muscles. That's all. Right. And And, um, and that's why. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Like you said, you know, that's what I do. If I'm going to use it for a sauce, which I do a lot of times, sometimes I don't because my wife and kids don't they don't use it. So I'll, I'll just go ahead and I'll you know, let them use steak sauce, but I like to make a sauce out of it, but I usually yeah. heat it up on the stove and, and you know, like you said, and, and then just um, strain it, strain off the uh, foam that comes to the top. Exactly. And then you, you pretty much got stock, you know, it's, it's, you know, just like you would, uh, you know, you know, get your, you know, boil your bones or something. It's, it's beef stock. Yes, it is. It's delicious. And, it's, and it's a lot more flavorful too. So. Absolutely. But I, I, I keep my purge for, uh, almost everything. I, I love that stuff. Yeah, it's great. Stuff. And, if you, and if you seasoned your protein beforehand, now you have seasoned uh, stock. Yeah, but that's a big important step though, because people do they get freaked out when they go to make a sauce out of it and it gets that stuff at the top. You know, they just got to understand, just strain it off. It's not going to hurt you. You know, and it's just you don't want to keep it in there because it can make it gummy and you know not you know. Uh, have that mouthfeel it's not really good so um you know just strain the uh you know the foam at the top off and then you got perfectly seasoned stuff you can make gravy right. out of or a sauce and, and for your listeners again the red color in meat is not blood it's not it's, blood it's no different than poultry the only right. reason why white meat is is uh white is because the chickens don't get a lot of exercise that's it that's right. So, yeah, the breast is the most uh, not used uh, muscle in the in exactly, the <laughs> and that's why the legs and the thighs are a little darker because it has a higher percentage of myoglobin. That's okay. it. All right, so let's move on to using an ice bath before searing. Oh yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. So, um, so this came from one of our one of my followers, and you know, it's kind of a general question, but yeah, you know, I know ice baths, you know, can be used, you know one way or the other, you know, for bigger roasts or when you're smoking or, you know, for steaks. So let's just touch on ice baths uh, overall. Okay. Um, Well, let's talk why we do it. So if you're sous vide processing protein and you're going to have it down the road a couple of days for dinner, uh, three or four days a week, two weeks, you need to shock it to get it below uh, a certain temperature. Uh, the USDA will say, you know, within the first two hours, get it below 70 degrees, and then you can refrigerate it. It basically requires a lot of ice, a lot of water. Um, and in regards to how does it apply to sous vide, if you want to eat right away, think of it this way. Um, you've got a piece of protein that's been cooked to its optimum temperature. Let's say a New York strip at 128 degrees. If you take it out of the bag, dry it off, throw it into a skillet, it has nowhere to go but up. So from 128, it's going to rise in temperature. Your now perfectly cooked steak is now at 135 degrees. Shocking is a way to mitigate that. And what I mean by that is I'm not talking about putting it in the ice bath, but maybe running under cold water for like two or three minutes. Maybe submerging it for two or three minutes 
dropping it down to let's say 115, 117. That way, when you pull it, put it into the skillet, right to brown into my yard, it'll rise back up to 128 degrees. And it's all based on thickness, of course, and technique and, and your experience. Yeah, and and like I said, uh, this comes up, and it's not uh, like you said, it's not just one one reason to use an ice bath. There's more than no. one. It's um, I, when I do um, you know, large you know barbecue meats like you know pork butt mm-hmm. or, or brisket. Right, right. I, I, I'm doing that to drop the core temperature down for pretty much the same way you would do it on that steak you just mentioned. Yes. So, so that when I do put it on the smoker, it gives me a lot more time to have that meat to develop that bark and that smoke right. flavor that we like to get, because even though, you know, smoke is mostly going to be a surface treatment, the more moisture that you can have and the longer it can be in that smoker. Um, and you know, you keep applying moisture to it by spritzing it every, you know, 30 or right. 40 minutes, which attracts more smoke, more smoke. And then that bark gets to be built. And that, and, and if you have your, have it iced, down so that that core temperature is back under a hundred and you know a hundred degrees you know you got that much more time to keep it on that smoker to get back you got plenty of wiggle room plenty of time to develop that bark and i think a lot of people don't understand that that's why they try to you know smoke it before they sous vide it because they think it's going to spread you know it's going to be better yeah uh, it, it both ways work but i'm not a fan of smoking uh uh before because you don't develop any bark Right. So yeah, to, you know, so, and yeah, so that's, that's one way to use the ice bath. The other is like you said, if you're going to store your, your food for a longer period of time mm-hmm. to get that, you want to get that down back, you know, through that danger zone as quick as possible right. so that you're storing and you don't have any, uh, doesn't have any way at all to have any bacteria grow inside. Right. Let's work in reverse though, Darren. So for example, let's say you have a one inch steak was coming out of the refrigerator it was sous vide process it was shocked but now it's ice cold do you have to re-therm okay do you have to bring it up the temperature before you put it in the frying pan or skillet well that's based on thickness if it's not too thick you can go directly from the refrigerator to the skillet or to the grill and during the maillard reaction it will come up to a serving temperature if you have something very very thick you may have to um Resuvie to bring up to an appropriate temperature, then grill or um, cook in a, in a saute pan or something like that. For example, chicken breasts. Chicken breasts are pretty thin. You know, pop one out of the bag, throw it in a skillet. You got chicken breast that's actually uh, at about 125 degrees for, for a serving temperature. But if you got something really, really thick, you're going to have to retherm that, uh, whether sous vide or, or some other way, like your smoker, for example. Right. Your barbecue. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> All right, so let's let's keep moving. Let's go to somebody asked about resting your meat after a sous vide cook and sear. Is it necessary? Okay. If so, do you tent it? Do you cover it? Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? You don't have to do any of that stuff. The only reason why you would um, rest your meat is so the juices can, can um, um, redistribute inside the protein. Uh, resting um, is, is always carryover temperature. If you were to do it, like, say, in an oven or a barbecue, with sous vide, it's never going to exceed 131 degrees if that's what you had your IC set at. So resting your meat is unnecessary. Shocking, of course, is if you want to uh, uh, brown it. But resting, no. Uh, tenting, 
You know, I never really understood the idea of tenting unless you wanted to keep it warm. So you have a turkey that comes out of the oven, you put a tent on it. All I think that does really is increase the moisture on the surface and it makes your skin uh, uncrispy. So I'm not right. a big fan of that. But resting, uh, not with sous vide. You can go right from the sous vide, dry it off, put it in the skillet, pop it out and eat it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people get confused. They don't know what – they think resting is – it's cooling down, you know, and then all the juices are getting redistributed. But what, what it really does is like you said, it's overcooking. It's, it's continuing to cook yes, it is. while it's, while it's sitting there, because it's like that train analogy we used earlier, that train was going a hundred miles an hour. You took it off. Yep. Okay. It may be not going a hundred miles an hour anymore, but it's still going 60 or 70. And then yeah, it's so going down, it's down, then it's going to 50 to 40 to 30. Let's, let's talk about that for your listeners. So carryover temperature. So for example, let's talk about your top round, right? So you got a roast, right? It's probably four and a half inches, five inches by about eight inches. You throw it in a 350 degree oven. You pull that out 125 degrees, right? Nice and rare. But since it was in a 350-degree oven, you have to let it rest and do two things. If this carryover temperature, it's going to get up to about 100, probably 129 uh, degrees internal temperature. Because the carryover temperature, that will not happen with sous vide at all, okay? But by letting it rest, it will distrib- redistribute the juices inside, but it will continue to cook. With sous vide, you don't have to do neither, nothing. I mean comes out of the oven it's at 100 out of, out of the immersion circulator uh uh vessel it's at 131 degrees exactly it doesn't have to redistribute because the no. juices are already distributed Very bad for you yeah exactly all right so let's keep moving now somebody asked a question about tenderizers in combination with sous vide so like are using hard to like uh uh the, the the stuff you sprinkle on the meat that or pineapple or you know because you know i guess that comes up because you've seen i've seen uh like you know guga sous vide everything they've they've done these kind of experiments with using different tenderizers okay and then using them in conjunction with sous vide to kind of tenderize stuff which to me sous vide tenderizes on its own well enough that i don't think you need anything else to help tenderize all that is 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 um a way to marinate and, and, and you're not really tenderizing because as, as we know, it's not going to penetrate on the surface. It will kind of break down the proteins and kind of make it uh, mush a little bit. So I'm not all, I'm not for tenderizers. I, I'm not. I've actually used um, uh, a marinade that had a lot of, uh, you know, apple cider vinegar, vinegar in it. When I first started sous vide cooking, you know, it's a, uh, a, uh, chicken recipe that's from upstate New York and it uses apple cider vinegar as a marinade mm-hmm. and it actually, you know, turned the chicken to mush. So I, 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 I avoid using any kind of seasoning or any kind of stuff in the bag that can do that because it can have a really bad. Well, uh, pineapple juice is interesting because it has an enzyme in there and there's actually in, in, in huge commercial meat tenderizers, they, 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 however they do it, they dehydrate it. They break it down, and it's actually a sprinkle they put on meat. But all it really does is it breaks down the surface of the meat and makes it kind of mushy. Now, I'm not against marinades per se, okay? But marinades usually have a lot of other flavors in it, you know, uh, salt, pepper, garlic, herbs, spices, you know, um, and oil, okay? Uh, good marinades don't contain a lot of uh, a lot of the acidic stuff like, you know, pineapple juice, 
apple cider vinegar, uh, lemon juice, uh, lime juice. Um, otherwise, your, your, your meat's going to turn out to be mush. Uh, exactly. I'm not for it. I'm not for it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's, yeah. That's what I always say. If you're going to marinate something, make sure there isn't something in the acid or something in there that's going to, going to, uh, you know, your make, over, over tenderize your meat. Um, all right. So here's another one. This is a quick one. What's the best chamber vacuum bag to use with sous vide? Wow. Um, I don't think that's really, uh, I think pretty much any chamber vac bag one um, that works one that works how's one, that ones that work yeah i mean three mil is probably the most used one out there um yes uh if you're concerned about the bag breaking you might want to get the four mil ones the right. thicker ones but i i use i mean the three mils are cheap you can buy them and you know bulk for like you know three or four cents each yes. and that, that's what i use that yeah right. no particular brand name as long as they're food safe they're they're fine and again they work <laughs> yeah, so they work. each company has their own way of making them so you find one that's cheap it works stick with it exactly okay so what uh, another one adding things to the bag like i've seen this a lot especially um on youtube where they put slices of onions and whole yeah. garlic and you know the springs of uh thyme and and you know the fresh herbs and all that in the bag what are I, your have thoughts? An, I have an opinion on that all right so back to what we said earlier about surface treatment but let's specifically talk about onion garlic and fresh herbs all you're doing is flavoring that specific spot on the protein that's it so that one specific spot on the protein is going to have a very pronounced flavor, okay? Now, there's a workaround if you want to do it, and I've done this, and it works very, very well, and I didn't come up with it. Uh, Thomas Keller's, one of their sous chefs came up with this, where, and I do it with my turkeys, you can take a bunch of fresh herbs, and by the way, I'm against fresh garlic and onion, but that's a, I'll get to that in a second. Take a bunch of fresh herbs, chop them all up, and put them in a plastic sachet. Um, for your listeners, what is a sachet? A sachet is usually used when you make stocks. It's cheesecloth. You put a bunch of stuff in it. You tie it up. You put it in your stock. A plastic sachet is just a piece of plastic wrap, right? Usually about eight inches by eight inches. You put your herbs in the middle, fold the bag over, pierce the bag with some type of a knife, and you put that on your meat. As the meat cooks, it releases moisture. It intermingles with the herbs, and the herbs release moisture uh, into the meat, and it perfumes your meat. It doesn't really penetrate, but it will perfume your meat. Putting it directly on the meat, right, does nothing except make that one specific spot um, have a very pronounced flavor. Does that make sense at all? Yeah, exactly. Uh, It's like a tea. Yeah, it's a tea bag, you know, just like a, the, the same yeah. concept of a tea bag. You're going to get the, the moisture will extract the, uh, the flavors from the herbs and then it uh, seasons the uh, the purge. But yeah, exactly. I, 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 I'm with you. It will perfume the meat. It will perfume the meat is how I call it. Exactly. And, you know, that's why I use, you know, mostly dry seasonings you know i use yes. you know, garlic powder onion yep. powder because that's what you're doing you're avoiding that okay yeah it does taste maybe a little bit different but you're, you're the benefit of getting the garlic flavor throughout uh-huh. the whole the whole purge and the and the outside of the meat is going to be so much better well let me ask you concentrated so a raw garlic right cooked at 131 degrees will remain raw and it does not taste good 
Right, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't taste good raw. So same thing with onions. Onion right. powder, garlic powder works, but none of that stuff raw. Right. Okay, we're on the same page there. All right, um, cooking in the store vacuum packaging. This comes up like at least twice a day. People will say, I just bought this, you know, these steaks and they're already vacuum packed from the store. Should I cook in them? Wow. So I read several articles on that and all the plastic bags that are manufactured in the United States, okay, um, is are safe. But are they safe at sous vide temperatures? I don't know. I've read yes, and I've read no. But what concerns me more than that, because I know the bags are safe, is that uh, are they punctured? I've seen people take uh, vacuum sealed bags from the store, dump them in the water, frozen, but yet there was a little hole in the bag. I say rebag, because yeah. that way you know that they're not, they haven't been punctured anywhere. I had uh, I just did a video uh, last week on I got some steaks from Crowd Cow for. Mm-hmm you know, Wagyu steaks and they're all individually sealed. And then I thawed them out and two of them, you know, were leaking, you know, fluid out of them. So even though they're still vacuum sealed, but you'd, like you said, you don't know what happened to that meat, how they handled it when it came into the store, you know, they threw it into the case, you know, when it was frozen and they throw it all on top of each other. And how many times do you actually take a, like a pork butt and thaw it out and it's all, you know, vacuumed up, but when it gets thought out, you got to puddle in your oh, refrigerator. So yeah. a lot of times, you know, uh, and that's why I'm still not a fan of uh, soothing uh, frozen food, unless I personally have uh, um, vacuum sealed them myself. But I've got a lot of punctures where I've actually defrosted something in my refrigerator. Uh, and I always put it on paper towel because of the moisture collection. But I find out, oh, there's a hole in the freaking bag, and I have a puddle in my refrigerator. Yeah, so that's not fun. You know, and besides that is that if you want to, you know, season it before you throw it in, you know, the sous vide anyway, at least you have that opportunity. Or I said, worst case scenario, if you just want to, I'd say you could keep it in that bag, but just put it in another vacuum bag and seal it because. I've done that too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, like I said, one of the things you don't want to do, especially if it's a a nice, expensive steak, is throw it in there and all of a sudden oh. water got in there and it made it waterlogged, you know? That's a mess. Now you got to clean your cooking vessel, got to cl- clean yeah. your IC. What a pain. You know, just to save that, what, two cents on the vacuum bag and the oh, uh, no kidding. Five, five seconds it took you to vacuum seal it. it the, the risk and reward factor is not uh, anywhere close. So Agreed. Um, let's, let's address the cooking in plastic since that's kind of like a similar issue. I mean, every once in a while you get somebody that comes into the groups and goes, Oh my God, we're going to get cancer. I tell them to leave the group. Oh my God. It's simple. Leave the group. You, you get the boot. You know, if you start criticizing, do some research. Uh, Shep Steps has written uh, several articles on the subject, uh, modern cuisine and their, and their books have addressed this issue. All the plastic. Uh, the proper, I can't even pronounce the word, propylene, all those plastic bags manufactured in the United States are safe for food. End of discussion. Don't like, don't like it. Don't join the group. Yeah. I mean, I, I, every once in a while you get some guy that, you know, the only reason they joined the group was to do that. And, you know, yes. I'll, see, I'll see them in other trolls, trolls. Exactly. And they'll post a, you know, some blog post from somebody from three years ago that, you know, misquoted some re- research, you know, some weird research, uh, you know, article yep. 10 years ago. And you're like, it's like, it's like MSG. Yeah. Someone cooks with MSG and you have all the vultures come out and say how 
how it's unsafe. It's like, you know, yeah, thank you for your opinion. Let's move on. <laughs> exactly. All right. So then one of the last ones, let's get to this one is because this is a, one of those subjective things is what's the best searing method? <laughs> best searing method is, well, you're talking to a guy who's done it every way. I would tell you my least favorite way uh, is using the torch. I will not use the torch. It takes way too long. It doesn't produce flavorful food. Um, I've done it every way, from the barbecue to the grill uh, to a broiler to a a frying pan. Um, I actually really, really, really like um, the frying pan. Just love it because I get that, at least mine, up to 700 degrees. And it produces amazing Maillard. Uh, reactions. You can get the crust, you can get the fat. I love that. Uh, my other way, my, my other way, when it's not raining outside, of course, is on uh, my Weber. Charcoal, right over the charcoals. I mean, it's amazing. The flavor. Yeah. Oh, I, uh, I'm one of the ones that when I first started, I got through the whole hype of, you know, the Sears all thing. And I have it. I own it. Yeah. I bought one and, you know, I had to wait till they came back in stock on Amazon, paid my 75 bucks for this thing, yeah. had to pay the 40 bucks to get the, you know, TS 8,000 as well. Then I had to go buy some yep, propane tanks. All. And then, uh, I was like, really? I spent all this money for this crappy way to see her. Yeah. <laughs> I'm took- only doing like two or three steaks, you know, um, and the weather's nice outside because I live in Seattle. It's always raining, you know, uh, the charcoal starter, you know, right on top of the coals. You know, it does a great job. It hits about a thousand degrees. Uh, Great flavor. If I can't, the frying pan inside the house, you know, is wonderful. Um, I will say one thing for the Sears all. Ready? It makes great nachos. Yeah, it melts cheese really well, but that's Yes, it does. I'll touch on this one last thing about the Sears all. If you want to pasteurize the surface of your meats, which I'll do on some larger cuts, and that's a, a different topic for a different day. It's great. You can you can you can pasteurize the outside, and then back and sell. Yeah, but I'm with you to sit there and you know take ten minutes to sear a, a you know oh. couple of steaks or a roast. It's just your hand starts to cramp after a while, and it's uh, now I do have um, I have one coming, but I tested out this uh, you know the grill sear gun and grill gun the Suzy gun that this guy had put together that's kind of based on the uh, Harbor Freight weed uh, burner. Yeah. That, gets, that gets, you know, up to 400,000 BTU. So it's actually, I, I've tested it. It works great. That, you know, is about the only way I would use a torch anymore. Uh, the Sears all is just pretty much like you said, it takes forever. Even the TS 8000 on its own, it just doesn't put out enough heat and BTUs to do it, you know, like you could <laughs> on a, on a grill or, a, you know, a griddle or a cast iron pan. But I have so many different ways to sear now that. Is that restaurant struggle with taking orders? I, uh, I, uh, you know, I don't use a torch anymore, but I will, you know, I I will, um, like I said, if, uh, if I'm, you know, in a hurry and I don't want to light my grill or turn on or smoke up the house, you know, when, once I get that sous vide gun, you know, I can push out, you know, 400,000 BTUs on it and I can get a nice quick. I'm looking forward to your, your review. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, I did, there's a video on my uh, YouTube channel showing the prototype, but uh, from what I understand, the prototype is, you know, probably about 90% of what the actual product's going to be when it gets here. And that's coming soon. So I'll, is it I'll, propane or is it electric? No, it's propane. It's uh, it's yeah. a propane, but it's, uh, 
it burns uh you know the the gas and oil mixture is makes it where it's uh, and it, it pushes it out a lot hotter than you can get any other torch so um, so it might be either okay for for sous vide or really really great for dodge house <laughs> no it's it's believe me the one i used uh, check out my video on my youtube channel I will. I'll, I'll, look, I'll look up the grill gun and uh because i i tried them both out so but um yeah I, I, it is though you know like i said i i like using you know my grills as well and a cast iron uh skillet is probably in the middle there but um i'm in florida so i can grill pretty much anytime i want oh, uh, lucky but, you. <laughs> but um and i have a I have a big patio and a bunch of different grills i can choose from but um yeah i mean i the sears all was a thing i i wasted 75 bucks on and i'll uh, regret it but that's okay i mean yeah you, know, you, you gotta you get great for nachos and sometimes you gotta yeah. try things but uh well i think that's about uh that's a good episode here covered a bunch of stuff hopefully people that are just now getting into sous vide can listen to this and get some ideas on on what to look for and and answer some of the questions that people may have out there um anything else you want to kind of touch on before we uh well i just want to give a couple of caveats uh, uh i am not against pasteurization uh, I like pasteurizing almost everything, um, but I just want people to understand the dangers out. It's not do some research. Um, it's misleading. It's, it's over. It's, it's it's very complicated. So I'm not against pasteurization, but the danger zone is overly exaggerated. Yeah, and I think people really understand that in their day to day lives. They you know they'll cook food you know and leave it out on their counter for an hour before they put it away, you know, not, not thinking twice about it, you know? <laughs> oh, that is the most dangerous thing in the world to do. Oh my gosh. But people do it all the time, you know, you, you, and, you know, they don't think about it, but they'll sit there and go, oh, well, that's in the danger zone, you know, or you know, whatever. But, uh, but they'll leave their food out on the counter for hours at a time. That's where people get really, really sick. And I'm writing an article on, on that specifically. Oh gosh. That's yeah. so bad. All righty, sir. Well, thanks again, Lloyd. Um, Lloyd Capuccio from the Kosher Dosher. I want to thank you for joining me, and we'll do something like this again. Sounds good, uh, right, I uh, really like touching on these topics, and uh, especially with somebody like you who does a lot of these experiments and gets down deep into the minutiae that uh, some people don't like to do. We like to have people like you that we can come to and uh, ask well, these questions you. for sure. So, Thank you. I love this stuff. So it's just, I love it. And I'm, I'm sure we'll do this again. Um, you know, a few times. So thanks again for joining me and you can find Lloyd on pretty much any sous vide group, uh, on Facebook. I know he's in my group, fire and water cooking. He's in, uh, sous vide food and fun. He's in, uh, uh, sous vide dummies, uh, exploring sous vide. Um, you can find Lloyd anywhere. And also the kosher dosher blog, do a Google search and you'll find out, uh, his blog has got a ton of information, not just sous vide. He, he, he does a lot of different things with uh, meat glue and all oh, kinds, yeah. all kinds of different stuff. So check out the kosher dosher blog as well. Thanks for joining me, Lloyd. Thank you, Darren, for having me on. I really appreciate it. And thanks everybody for joining us on the fire and water cooking podcast. All right. All thanks again for joining us on the fire and water cooking podcast. I want to thank Lloyd Capuccio again for answering these uh, sous vide questions. I hope you guys got a lot out of this. We'll probably do these uh, again soon, uh, answering some other questions. Make sure you check out 
Lloyd's uh, blog, The Kosher Dosher. I'll have a link in the description below. Also, make sure you follow us on our Facebook group and page, Fire and Water Cooking. Check out the Fire and Water Cooking channel on YouTube for some great sous vide and barbecue videos. And join us again on the next Fire and Water Cooking podcast. I'll see you on the next episode.